At about 9.45 p.m. on April 14th, 2015, an eerie calm was blanketing the St. Croix River at Interstate Park in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, if only for a moment. Minutes earlier, the very opposite was true, and just minutes later, the scene would be in chaos again. A verbal confrontation that had turned into a physical one between two groups of men had just ended. The last thing I remember seeing was his tennis shoes and my flip-flops. And just, I I stabbed him. The confrontation ended with one man, just 34 years old, lying on the ground, gasping for his last breaths while his friend frantically dialed 911. And with another group of four friends, all aged 19, fleeing the St. Croix River vowing to never speak about what happened to anyone, let alone to the police. When officers arrived at the scene just minutes after the 911 call was made, they found the man lying on the ground, his friend kneeling over him, doing CPR to try and revive him. The man on the ground's name was Peter Kelly, and although his friend was trying hard to save him, it ultimately wouldn't work. Peter died that night, after being transported to the St. Croix Regional Medical Center. He had suffered a single stab wound to the left side of his chest. There were many witnesses who were there when the confrontation turned deadly, but only two people know for sure what happened, and one of those people was now deceased. This is Jillian, and you are listening to Court Junkie, Episode 78. Peter's friend, Ross Leckman, who was reportedly covered in blood and vomit, spoke with investigators at the sheriff's department later that night. He said he and Peter had been fishing on the Minnesota side of the river when they got into an argument with the group of 19-year-olds who were on the Wisconsin side of the river, across from them. They ended up going over to confront them, and shortly after, things had turned physical. One of the younger guys pulled out a knife and stabbed Peter with it. Afterwards, they fled. Ross described what the young men had looked like and said they had a dog with them, too. Back at the scene, investigators were collecting evidence, trying to piece together exactly what had happened. There was a trail of blood in the grass, and there was a car that they would later determine to be Peter's that had the back window smashed out of it, and there were two Walmart receipts on the ground by some picnic tables. The Polk County Sheriff's Office issued a press release asking for the public's help in finding the unidentified men. Meanwhile, they were able to trace the receipts they had found back to a man who hadn't been at the scene on the day the incident occurred, but who knew the young men they were looking for. They were from Cambridge, Minnesota, and so the Polk County Sheriff's Office contacted law enforcement there. They learned the identities of the four men, who by that time had retained attorneys. Enter Eric Nelson, a criminal defense attorney from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mr. Aker Kendall and his friends uh, all sort of made arrangements to surrender themselves to talk to police. Those of them who spoke with the police uh, and then my client surrendered himself into custody within about 24 to 36 hours after the the death of Mr. Kelly. 
in that intervening 36 hours, uh, his family began the task of locating and interviewing a variety of lawyers. Um, they met with us, and ultimately we were hired by the family to represent Levi. The Levi he's referring to is Levi Aker Kendall, a 19-year-old who lived with his family in a small rural community about an hour outside of Minneapolis. Levi had decided to turn himself in to authorities. Based on the advice of his new attorney, Eric Nelson, Levi didn't speak with police after he was arrested. He was initially charged with first-degree reckless homicide. Levi's mother reportedly turned her son's clothing, as well as the knife that had been used in the killing, over to investigators. The community of St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, where Peter Kelly and his family lived, was in shock over his death. Peter worked at a windows company and was a wrestling coach at the local high school. He and his wife had been married for nine years and had five children together, all under the age of nine at the time of Peter's death. A GoFundMe campaign was started for his wife and children, stating that they had been a one-income family and would certainly be struggling to make ends meet now that Peter was deceased. The community rallied around them and more than $100,000 was raised. Meanwhile, Levi was released on bond. Under the terms of his bail, he was to stay in Minnesota, wear an ankle monitor, be home at 9 p.m. every night. He also could not possess or use any weapons, could not obtain a passport, and would not be able to contact anyone in Peter's family, nor anyone who was there the night of the stabbing, including his friends. But just eight days later, Levi was arrested and taken into custody for violating his bail. On the very day of his release, prosecutors said he sent out a tweet, knowing that his friends who had been there that night would see it since they were following him. The tweet read, If you're praying for me, please keep the Kelly family in mind as well. I never intended for this to happen, and I wish it never did. He also changed his Twitter profile photo to a photo of himself with two of the friends who were with him that night. Then the next day, he tweeted again, quote, going to Chipotle to gain back the 15 pounds I lost. Levi's bond was raised due to the violations, and his family was reportedly unable to raise the money to get him out before trial, which would start in December 2015. Meanwhile, Eric and the rest of Levi's defense team were preparing for trial. As far as what you do to prepare, I mean, there's, there's a, a relatively lengthy legal process that happens when a criminal case is initiated. The first step is obviously learning what you can about the facts and the circumstances from your client, from other witnesses who maybe have, have information and then we uh, get all of the state's uh, evidence. So it's called the discovery process, where the state is legally obligated to provide the defense with all evidence, and that includes both exculpatory and inculpatory evidence. So witness statements, police reports, forensic reports, and it's an ongoing obligation on the part of the state. So as more information is learned or more forensics are conducted, we continually are updated. So. You, you just begin reviewing that. You begin talking with witnesses. Um, you begin identifying potential defenses that may apply in a case. And then 
the legal process just continues with motion practice and a, a variety of other court hearings along the way. Levi's defense team was planning on arguing self-defense. And as soon as they made this known, the state added another charge of second-degree intentional homicide. The difference is between reckless homicide and intentional murder is really a question of intent. When you intend to kill someone, that's the second-degree homicide. And, and the act of making a, a decision in your brain that I am going to stab this person is indicative of an intent to kill where reckless homicide may not, you know, it could be an accident. You could be doing something. You can just be swinging a knife wildly and stupidly and that would and cause someone's death and that would be reckless or potentially reckless. So when self-defense became an issue, it would legally, Mr. Aker Kendall would have to admit that he made a conscious decision to stab Mr. Kelly and therefore he had the intent to kill. And that was the decision to include the second, that was the prosecutor's decision to include the second degree intentional homicide. Levi's defense team was going to argue that Levi had the right to defend himself using deadly force, and they were hoping to use Wisconsin's Castle Doctrine to help do it. So what the Castle Doctrine is, is it is essentially the self-defense instruction. The way it changes things legally is that when the Castle Doctrine applies, it creates a presumption that the use of force was reasonable, as opposed to it eliminates that requirement for the defense to establish by a prima facie showing that they're entitled to self-defense. So it creates a presumption. So under Wisconsin law, if you are in your home, your business, or your car, and you are attacked, you have a right to defend yourself, and your actions will be presumed reasonable under the circumstances. It also eliminates what's called the duty to retreat. So in a self-defense case, if you're attacked, if it is at all possible you have an obligation under the law to retreat from the circumstances. And again, the defense has to show that retreat was not possible by prima facie evidence. And the state has to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt that you could have retreated. It, uh, the, the Castle Doctrine eliminates the duty to retreat. You do not have to run from your house. You do not have to run from your car or your business if you're being attacked. The case was so high profile and emotionally charged in Polk County, Wisconsin, that the judge ruled that the jury, which was from a neighboring county, would be sequestered. Peter's family was obviously looking for justice, while Levi's family was worried for their own son's future. He was facing up to 60 years in prison if convicted of either charge. It was apparent from the very first day at trial that there would be differing, even sometimes inconsistent accounts of what happened that night, and it would ultimately be up to the jury to decide who they would believe. In his opening statements, District Attorney Dan Steffen told the jury that April 14th, 2015 was a beautiful day in a beautiful area. But at some point, after a verbal dispute, Levi Aker Kendall stabbed Peter Kelly in the heart and killed him. 
It's the state's opinion that when you stab somebody in the heart, you've obviously have little regard for human life, he told them. He told the jury that they would be calling Levi's three friends who were with him that night to the stand, and that although they're very good friends with Levi, the things they will testify to will help prove the state's case. He said Levi was being charged with reckless homicide and second-degree intentional homicide because at this point, even he is unsure of what's going to be said in the testimony. Remember, Levi hadn't spoken to police, so they essentially had no idea as to what he was going to say. Could it be intentional? Is it reckless? Stefan asked. He noted that intent can be formed just prior to the action. He told the jury that they would be hearing a lot about self-defense, but that Levi must have had a reasonable belief that the force used was necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm. He compared the case to a giant puzzle and noted that there will be one big puzzle piece missing, Peter's account of what happened. Levi's attorney, Eric Nelson, told the jury in his opening statements that it was self-defense. He said Peter was threatening and had even used homophobic slurs when yelling at Levi and his friends. He called it a one-sided misunderstanding and said Peter thought the group was laughing at him, but that they were really watching videos on YouTube when the argument initially began. He said Peter and Ross considered the actions of Levi and his friends disrespectful and that they were ruining the park. But although their conduct bothered them, they didn't call the police or stop at the entrance to the park. Instead, he said they went down a long winding road with their headlights off to where the group was. They parked about 200 yards away and walked quietly and stood beside a tree while they tried to see how many guys there were. He said Peter and Ross singled out Levi and threw him down to the ground. Levi took his fishing knife out and told them that he didn't want to fight. Nelson told the jury that they weren't disputing that Levi had pulled a knife, but noted that he was trying to leave. He said he had gotten into the passenger side of his friend's car when Peter tried to drag him out. Peter lunged at him and started to wrestle him out. It was then that Levi stabbed him in self-defense. Quote, The state bears the burden of not only proving guilt, but proving that Levi did not act in self-defense. The state will not be able to satisfy those two burdens. And I will ask you to find Mr. Aker Kendall not guilty. The state's first witness was Ross Leckman. He told the court that he and Peter had been best friends since sixth grade and that they often went fishing together. After work on April 14th, 2015, they decided to go fishing on the Minnesota side of the St. Croix River. They had chosen that side as opposed to the Wisconsin side because there were less people and it was more peaceful. When they arrived, it was about 6.30 p.m. He and Peter sat down and started drinking and fishing. He said they both had four cans each of hard cider. The night started out great, and he said at one point he sneezed and someone in the group across the river yelled, bless you, and he waved his hand at them in acknowledgement. But as the night went on, the group across the river started getting louder and louder. They tried to ignore it, but it only got worse. And then they smelled marijuana. He said the park was important to Peter and him. They had been going there for years since they were young, 
And the group, quote, hooting and hollering and smoking marijuana really bothered them. Ross told the jury that he couldn't remember exactly what was said or who said it, but they called out to the group for them to quiet down, telling them to have a little respect that it was a family place. He disagreed with Levi's attorney in his opening statement, where he said that Peter yelled homophobic slurs at the group. He said, in fact, Levi was the one to use a homophobic slur when he responded to them, telling them to shut up. He told the jury that Peter never swore, that he could count how many times he had ever heard him swear on one hand. Later, as he and Peter were packing up to leave, the same guy who had yelled out before again used a homophobic slur and yelled, are you heading out? Peter responded that they were and then said, why don't you guys shut up and leave us alone? Why don't you come over here and make us was the response. Peter then said, we'll see you in 10 minutes. Ross said that Levi responded, see you then or something along those lines. He and Peter trekked back to their car, talking about other things, he said. But after they got in the car, Peter said they should probably stop over at the park and talk to those guys, that it's not a place where you come and smoke drugs and yell all night. So they decided to drive over. Ross said their headlights were on, not off, that they wouldn't have been able to see anything if they had driven with their lights off because it was so dark. Ross admitted that it was his idea to park a little bit away from the group, about 100 to 150 yards away. He said he didn't want them to vandalize their car. They got out, went over to a tree, and sat and watched the group for a few minutes. He said they weren't sure how many guys there were, and that if they were going to go over and say something, they wanted to make sure they would be okay. He said they then heard one of the guys say, See? those pussies didn't even show up. Ross said they then responded, we're right here. He told the court that Levi approached them and although he couldn't remember exactly what he said, he said it was something really foul. Ross said he pushed Levi, something he was now embarrassed about, and Levi fell down to the ground. He heard Peter call out, hey, Roscoe, he's got a knife. Roscoe was the nickname Peter always called him. He said he saw a flash of something, but it was dark and couldn't make out what it was. He recalled that he told Levi that he was a pussy for bringing out a knife. He said Peter and Levi then started verbally arguing back and forth. One of Levi's friends tried to get in between the two men, but was rebuffed by both of them. Ross said he thought he saw taillights and looked away for about three or four seconds. When he looked back at Levi and Peter, they had separated and Peter had started to run away. That's when I heard Peter say my name. He said, Roscoe, we gotta go. And Roscoe, is that what he calls you? Yes, sir. Okay, and what do you do next? I looked in Peter's direction, like, you kind of just see him, he was running, he took off running. And I yelled at Pete, I said, Pete, what happened? And he said, back to me, he said, he stabbed me. Okay, and what did you do then? I looked over in Mr. Aker, Kendall's direction, and he was getting in the car, and he says, or I said to him, I said, you stabbed my friend? And he said in a stern voice, he said, yes, I did. And that's when he slammed the door, and the driver threw it in reverse, and they took off. Ross said he kicked the back of the car before running after Peter. 
He yelled out, Pete, Pete, where are you? He said at that point, he thought maybe Peter got stabbed in the arm or leg and would be fine. He didn't know how bad it was. He said he was running as fast as he could, trying to catch up with him. He didn't realize that Peter had fallen to the ground and he ran right past him. He didn't see him laying there. Okay, so I probably am probably 20 feet past Pete, I suppose, maybe. And I, I hear this awful noise, like, like it's just air blowing out of him, you know. And I, I run back, and I see it's him. I, I kind of scooped him up and rolled him over. He was laying on his stomach. He was laying face down on the ground. And I could feel it. He was hot and wet all over the place. So I knew he was bleeding really bad. And he was trying to talk to me, but he couldn't talk. His mouth was full of blood. And he was trying to say something, but I couldn't make it out. He said he saw where the hole was in Peter's chest and knew he was going to die. He put his hand over his heart, trying to hold the blood in. That's when he realized that his cell phone was locked in Peter's car. He started looking for the keys, looking in Peter's pocket, but he couldn't find them. Panicking, he ran back to their car, felt around the wheels, and then looked inside the gas tank, but still no keys. He said he tried to break the window with his knees and body, but couldn't do it. He felt around for a rock to break the window, but it wouldn't break. He noticed a handicap sign nearby, and so he broke that off and smashed it into the back window, shattering it. He got the cell phone and ran back to Peter. He was still breathing, and his eyes were still open. He put his arm underneath Peter's neck and held up his head. By this time, 911 was on the line. He was trying to talk to the dispatcher and said Peter was just looking at him, trying to talk but couldn't say anything. The 911 operator instructed him to give Peter mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and so he did. He described Peter as having a scared look in his eyes, but then looking peaceful. On cross-examination, Ross answered questions about how Levi had been holding the knife. When Mr. Anchor Kendall got up, had the knife, was he swinging it? No. Was he making stabbing motions towards you or Mr. Kelly? No, sir. Was he holding it out in front of him? No. You have it down at his side? Correct. And so you knew that that knife was there, right? Correct. But he wasn't threatening you with a knife? No. He wasn't threatening Mr. Kelly with a knife? No. Ross also acknowledged that he was interviewed by police that night after the incident and that in that interview, he didn't say anything about his own altercation with Levi. Remember, he had testified that he had pushed Levi down, nor did he tell the officers that he had kicked the car. Just as the prosecutor promised, Levi's three friends who were there that night also testified about what they say happened. Jacob Mossberg was first. He told the jury that he and his friends were smoking marijuana and watching YouTube videos when Peter and Ross started yelling at them from across the river. He said one of them yelled, keep talking like that and I'll put you to sleep or something to that effect. He said Levi then yelled back, but I'm not tired. And then the guy responded, we'll see you in five minutes. He said Levi had a very, very small amount of marijuana 
and that it was the first time they had ever smoked marijuana there at the river. As for the physical confrontation, he said he can't recall everything that was said, but at one point, Peter, not Ross, charged at Levi, and that's when the knife came out. It was a charge, he said, a full-on charge. I seen Kelly tackle Levi to the ground. They got back up. Levi pulled the knife. They separated. Uh, Oh, you're pulling a knife. You must be from cities or something. He said Peter was mocking Levi about having pulled the knife, saying that he must be from the city. Levi then tried to leave, but Peter kept following him. Peter then lunged into the car Levi was trying to get into, and that's when they started struggling. He said they were shoulder-locked and then demonstrated that to the jury, where both men were face-to-face with their hands on each other's shoulders. He said he didn't see Levi stab him. In the car on the way home, he called Levi, who was in the other car with the other guys. He asked Levi what had just happened, and Levi told him he had stabbed him. He told the jury that they didn't know Peter had died at first. They knew that it was serious, but not as serious as death. After the stabbing, he said it was like Levi wasn't even there almost. He said he was lost. On cross-examination, District Attorney Dan Steffen asked if Jacob had ever thought to go get the shotgun, pellet gun, or knives that he had in his truck, and Jacob said no. Hank Michaels was the second friend to testify. He said he didn't see the initial confrontation, but he saw that Levi had a knife. He went and stood between Levi and Peter to try and break it up, but Peter told him to get out of there, and so he gave up and walked back around the car. He said Peter was repeatedly telling them to just leave. After Levi pulled the knife out, Peter seemed to back off a little, but then seemed to get angrier. After the stabbing, the four friends fled the scene in two vehicles. He said he was driving one of the cars and that Levi was freaking out. He didn't know what he just did, he said. Even though he hadn't seen Levi stab Peter, he said Levi did tell him about it in the car. He told him, I knifed him, and then showed him the bloody knife. He testified that Levi also told him that Peter had punched him, but he said he didn't see that. He told the jury that they saw two police cars as they were leaving, but they didn't flag them down. They just wanted to get out of there. While they were driving, Levi called his dad and told him what happened. Levi's dad responded that he might go to jail and told him to come home. Later that night, Hank said they all got on their Xboxes and played Call of Duty, including Levi. He told the jury that the group made an agreement to not go to the police or tell anyone what had happened. The next afternoon, Levi sent him a text message that read, What if he died, dude? They would probably search the whole fucking woods. Hank said he was working at Menards later that afternoon when he found out that Peter Kelly had, in fact, died. He walked out of work and immediately called Levi and told him. He said he told Levi that he was going to turn himself in, but Levi responded that he was going to go back to work. It didn't seem to be a priority for Levi to turn himself in, he said. He acknowledged that Levi lifted weights, and he said he had seen him in fights before. Levi wasn't one to back down from anything, he said. He said he was prepared to help fight that night, to help Levi, if needed. 
He also acknowledged on cross-examination that there were a lot of bad decisions that night. Wasn't the worst decision of all to pull that knife, Stefan asked him, and he said yes. Stephen Phillips was the third friend who was there with Levi that night. He testified that he was right next to Levi almost the whole night, that they were watching YouTube videos and smoking marijuana. He said after the argument started, Peter yelled, see you in five minutes, and Levi responded, I'll see you then. Stephen said when Ross and Peter didn't immediately come over, he remarked to Levi that those pussies didn't even show up and that Levi then repeated it. Stephen's account of the initial physical confrontation was different than the others. He testified that it was Ross who first tackled Levi, just as Ross had claimed in his testimony, and that it wasn't Peter. He said this really scared him because Levi was the strongest one in their group, and that, quote, some guy had just tossed him around so easily. He said after Levi got up, he then pulled out the knife and said, I have a knife, don't fuck with me. The argument continued, however, with Peter calling Levi a pussy for bringing out a knife, but he said Levi told him more than once that he didn't want to fight. He said Peter told them all to go home, so he got into the back seat of Hank's car, and just as Levi was about to touch the front passenger seat, he saw Peter grab him, and the two were then in a shoulder lock. He didn't see what happened next, but he said Levi said they have to fucking go. He said they all fled the scene because they were afraid of Peter and Ross. As they drove away, they threw their marijuana out the window, and he said Levi turned on some music. They saw two squad cars, but didn't stop. On the drive home, he said Levi called his dad and told him that he had just stabbed someone. He said Levi's dad asked, did anybody see your license plate? And also asked if they had left anything behind. Levi's dad, Travis Kendall, testified that that account was true, but he said that when he asked if anyone had seen their license plate, it was because he was worried about retribution. And when he asked if they had left anything behind, he was referring to their fishing gear. After he hung up the phone with his son, he said he immediately told his wife. He admitted that he should have called the police right then, but he didn't something he said was one of the biggest mistakes of their lives. Maverick Nelson testified that he spoke with Levi the day after the stabbing. He said he had heard about the fight at the river, and so he called Levi about it and asked if he was involved. Levi told him no and then hung up on him. Michael Madsen, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Peter, said the stab wound went right through his ribs and into his heart. He testified that the wound was so severe that even if he had been stabbed at a hospital, he wouldn't have survived. He also testified that Peter's blood alcohol content was just .043, half the legal limit in Wisconsin. Nick Stalke, an analyst with the state crime lab, testified about the forensics in the case. He told the court that both Peter's and Levi's blood were found on the interior of a Toyota Camry. He said there were small droplets of Peter's blood in the front passenger area, on the console, the dashboard, and ceiling. Droplets that he said were more consistent with cast-off blood than impact blood, as though Levi had shaken the knife off in there after the fight. 
even though he said no blood was found on Levi's clothes. He also noted that Peter's blood was also found on the latch of the passenger door, indicating that the stabbing, quote, probably did not occur inside the car with the door closed. As for Levi's blood, he said that was found on the inside of the front passenger door. But despite the blood evidence he was able to gather, he said it was impossible to tell where the stabbing had taken place. Also found in the car was a footprint on the inside bottom of the passenger side door. This footprint was compared to that of Peter Kelly, but it wasn't a match. Peter's wife, Christy Kelly, immediately started crying when she took the stand. She told the court that Peter was not the type to threaten anyone, that he was loving, caring, and responsible. She described how she first learned about his death and what she told their five children. She said a police officer had come to her door at night and told her that her husband was dead. She waited until the kids woke up the next morning and then broke the news to them. She said they're still having trouble adjusting to the loss and that this will never end for them. Daniel Clark, who helped Peter get the job as a wrestling coach, also spoke highly of Peter, calling him one of the greatest men I have ever known. After the prosecution rested its case, Judge Molly Gale Wyrick ruled on whether to give the jury instructions on the Castle Doctrine, which, as Eric said earlier, means that Levi wouldn't have had to retreat if, quote, in response to unlawful and forcible entry into a dwelling, motor vehicle, or place of business. Levi's defense was arguing that the law would apply in this case, but the state disagreed, arguing that the stabbing had taken place outside of the vehicle, and then also arguing that the type of knife that Levi used, a switchblade, was actually illegal in Wisconsin. That should nullify the law in this case, they said. In the end, the judge sided with the prosecution, which meant they didn't have to prove how Levi was not using reasonable force in self-defense. In other words, the defense could still argue that it was self-defense, but they weren't afforded the presumption that his behavior was lawful. When it was the defense's turn to present their case, they called Levi to the stand to bolster that very claim of self-defense. Levi said that the night started out very civilly and that he was the one who said bless you when Ross sneezed. But things took a turn when he and his friend Stephen were watching a YouTube video called D's Nuts. Levi said he was eating peanuts at the time, and so he said to his friend, Yo, Steve, you want some of D's nuts? When he said that, he heard one of the guys across the river use a homophobic slur at him and say, You think that's funny? He said he was confused. They shouted back and forth with the man continuing to use the slurs. The man then said he was going to come over and put them to sleep. Levi said he responded, why? I'm not even tired yet. He said he and his friends fished for another 45 minutes or so. Peter and Ross were packing up, getting ready to leave when Stephen shouted something at them. They shouted back and another exchange ensued. Then a little bit later, Peter and Ross walked out from behind a tree and said, so you're the one who's talking shit? He said he's not sure who threw him to the ground, Peter or Ross, 
but that he was thrown on his hands and knees and even had scrapes on his knees. When he stood up, he pulled a knife out of his pocket and held it down in front of him, saying, I don't want to fight. He said Peter and Ross took a step back, making comments about the knife, while he then walked backwards around the car to the front passenger seat of Hank's car. He said Peter called him a pussy and said he's a big man with his knife. And Levi responded, yeah, I'm a big man with my knife. They continued going back and forth. Peter told them to just leave, but then he followed Levi and started fake lunging at him. With the knife still in his right hand, Levi said he opened the door with his left hand and sat down. One foot was in the car and one foot was out. He said he told Peter, you're a real badass. And then Peter flexed his muscle and said, you want to feel a real man's muscle? Hank then came over at that point and tried to intervene. But Peter brushed him off, saying, get back over there, you lanky motherfucker. And so Hank walked away. Peter then said, you pussies aren't worth my time. Just get out of here. Levi said he scoffed at Peter and said, we're done now. That's when Peter grabbed him and dragged him out of the car. At this point, he said he was scared as hell, that he felt like he was doomed. This is it, he said. He described Peter as having one hand behind Levi's head and one hand on his shoulder when he pulled him out. Levi said he had his hands on Peter's chest area. He said his head was up against Peter's stomach, and that's when he stabbed. The last thing I remember seeing was his tennis shoes and my flip-flops, and just... I, I stabbed him. He said he didn't know where he stabbed him. He just stabbed. He said after he pulled the knife out, he was even more scared. I was even more scared because they, they weren't phased by it. I mean, uh, I, I was intimidated. After he stabbed him, Peter ran away. Levi said he looked at his friends and said, we got to fucking go. They got into Hank's car and Hank reversed it. Ross, meanwhile, was outside and was pounding on Levi's window. They then sped away. As a result of the confrontation, he told the jury that he had skinned up his right and left knees and had blood blisters on his hand. He said he's sorry for what happened. I wish I could take it all back. I wish I could change it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have no further questions, Your Honor. On cross-examination, Dan Steffen pointed out that Levi's the only one who testified that Peter ever used the homophobic slur that none of his friends did. Levi responded that he was the one who was involved in the conversation, although he admitted that his friends were right there with him. He was asked if it's fair to say that he and his friends throw around homophobic slurs all the time on their social media, and he said yes. Stefan also grilled him on how he said he was scared after the verbal argument across the river. I did. I got a little nervous about why he had said that, yeah. And you're so scared and you're so nervous that you come back with a comment like, I ain't even tired yet. Is that what you're telling us? You're so scared and so nervous that you come back with what you got to acknowledge is a, what Hank Mossberg calls a smart-ass comment. Correct. I suppose, yeah. 
You said you were um, nervous and afraid to the point of you thought about packing up and leaving, right? It crossed my mind, but... And didn't you say that you had a conversation with, with any of the other three at that time about that? It wasn't really a conversation. It was kind of like what just happened. You never have a conversation with Mr. Mossberg, Mr. Michaels, or Mr. Phillips about, hey, I'm scared. Let's pack up and get the heck out of here. I can't say I did, no. And you fished for at least another hour. Is that fair? Yes. You weren't scared enough to get out of there? No. Weren't scared enough to call 911 at that point? No. Levi agreed with Stefan that Peter didn't kick, punch, hit, or choke him. He also agreed that he meant to stab him. Let's just get this out of the way. You intended to stab him. I guess, yeah. You intended to stab him. This wasn't an accident. Right? No. Okay. You didn't trip into him and, and accidentally stab him? No. You intended to stab him? Yes. He told Stefan that he didn't remember the conversation with his father on the way home after they fled the scene. He said when the four friends arrived back at Stephen's house, they weren't there long. Hank asked if he had the knife, and he said yes. And Jacob then told him that everything was going to be okay. He said he then got into his car and drove home after that. He denied that they ever agreed to not say anything about what happened. So you're saying that your lone communication at Stephen Phillips' house is those two things? Yeah. You don't have a discussion about all of you keeping quiet? No. So when everybody else says there was an agreement that we were going to lay low and keep quiet, you're not a part of that? Those three might have had that conversation, but I just wanted to go home. Were you not a part of that? No. So you never had a discussion about ditching the knife? Not that I remember, no. Well, which is it? Do you remember this, these conversations or just don't remember these conversations? I don't remember it happening, no. So if, again, you're not necessarily disagreeing what was said between your three friends, you just may not remember they testified to what they testified to. And you're not saying that they're t- not telling the truth, as you indicated earlier? They could be, but I just, I wasn't there for that. And they have no reason not to tell the truth. Isn't that what you said? Right. He also said he never played Xbox that night. Now you've heard Hank Michaels, Stephen Phillips both indicate that later that night you got on Xbox with them. I didn't get on Xbox that night. You're, again, saying that that just didn't happen and they're wrong. I think they're confusing it with the following night. They're wrong. I guess so, yes. He said the following night, he did play with Stephen and Hank. They chatted with each other then, but didn't discuss what happened. Earlier in the day, detectives had come to his house. Stefan then asked him about a post he had made on Facebook at 8.30 a.m. the morning after the stabbing, in which he uploaded the D's Nuts video. He said he may have posted that, but that he doesn't remember. Now, how do you think Levi came across to the jury during his testimony? Uh, He was, I think he came across, he was presented as this, you know, strong, fit, 
strapping 19 year old arrogant kind of a kid who was you know, yelling across the lake, derogatory remarks, right? He had been in jail, you know, going on a year. And that does something to someone, you know? And and I think he came across as contrite, and I think he was incredibly credible. When I have a client testify, I do not personally tell the client every single question that I intend to ask them because I, I ask questions that are that may be designed to to trigger a, a, a response, right? Whether it's a you know, whatever the particular response is. So I did not tell him certain questions that I was going to ask. So he could not possibly have ever been prepared, right? You know? So his reaction to that question has to be natural. And I do that intentionally. And I did that in this case, and I asked him some tough questions, and I mean, he started to cry. And I mean, you know, when when I asked, I don't remember what the exact question was, but I asked him a question that was, uh, you know, about his reaction to this whole thing, how the, how he has handled this, whatever the question was. I mean, he just <laughs> broke down, and I think I think I believe that the that his testimony was really what won the case. And it's not because I had prepared him. It's not because of I, I tricked him or asked him these questions. It's because he came, he was honest. He told the story, what happened. He was, his fear in talking about it was evident, his emotional response to it. And this isn't a kid that wanted to do this. After Levi's testimony, prosecutors decided to add a lesser homicide count to the options the jury could weigh. He had already been charged with first-degree reckless homicide and second-degree intentional homicide, both which carry a 60-year maximum sentence. Now prosecutors decided to add a second-degree reckless homicide charge. This charge carries a 25-year maximum sentence. In his closing arguments, prosecutor Dan Steffen reiterated the puzzle analogy he had used in his opening statements. He said sometimes there are pieces missing— But when you get to the end, you can clearly see what it's supposed to be. He acknowledged that the prosecution's experts from the state crime lab didn't tell the jury much, but they put them up there to disprove or to eliminate other aspects of the case. He brought up how Nick Stelke, the crime lab analyst, said there was blood all over the interior of that car. He said that neither the prosecution nor the defense is asserting that the stabbing took place in the car. It's not known how the blood got there, but in Mr. Stelke's ultimate expert opinion, it came from cast-off and wasn't an impact injury inside the car. He told the jury that that piece of the puzzle doesn't tell us much. And where does that leave us? That leaves us with the four big pieces of this puzzle. And those four big pieces of this puzzle are the four witnesses that were there that night. He highlighted some of the discrepancies in the friend's testimonies and how it doesn't fit with Levi's testimony. He said Jacob described seeing Levi and Peter in a shoulder lock, meaning they were face to face, holding on to each other's shoulders, while Levi claimed that Peter had him in a headlock and that his head was up against Peter's stomach when he stabbed him. He also said the group had an agreement to keep quiet. They had a discussion on possibly ditching the knife, 
And they also sent out text messages that showed they were trying to cover themselves. One text was one that Jacob had sent to a friend that said, you don't know me, you don't know Hank, you don't know Stephen, you don't know Levi, and we're not going fishing this weekend. Then after that, he wrote, delete this. They're hiding out. They're not going to go to the police, Stefan said. He pointed out that all four of them testified about how scared they were, that when they were leaving, they were so scared. But he noted how they dumped the marijuana and the pipe. They're so scared, he said. Such a traumatic event, yet they're dumping everything. Their thought processes were to cover this up, cover up what they were doing, get the heck out of there. Driving down Highway 8, they see that officer in the gas station. They don't stop. They get on 95. They see that trooper with lights and siren. They don't stop. They never call 911. Not before this happens, not while it's happening, not after it's happening, not when they're driving home, not when they get home, not the next day. And why is that important? We harped on that a lot. Why is that important? Because again, consciousness of guilt. You can consider that when you make your determination in terms of this defendant about his intent. You can use that information, and I ask that you do. He said the text message Levi sent to Hank the next morning about what if he dies also shows consciousness of guilt and intent. He told the jury that they have the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but not all doubt. When you're back there and deliberating, and you're going to read those instructions, there is the instructions on the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a heavy burden to overcome. I acknowledge that. The state has a heavy burden to overcome. You're presumed innocent. I acknowledge that. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, notice that that jury instruction does not say you are the, the, the proof, the, the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. It does not say beyond all doubt. Keep that in mind. You are to search for truth. You are not to search for doubt. And those are in your instructions when you take them back. He reminded them that they never got to hear from Peter Kelly. Eric gave the closing argument on behalf of Levi. The evidence in this trial has established the following fact. Peter Kelly was respected by his community. Peter Kelly was liked by his friends. Peter Kelly was loved by his family. Peter Kelly loved his wife and she loved him. Peter Kelly loved his children, and they loved him. There is not a person in this room that would disagree that the death of Peter Kelly was tragic. Peter Kelly will be missed by his family, and they are entitled to their grief, and they are entitled to be angry. But the Kelly family's grief must not be permitted to overshadow the rule of law. 
He said there are two important principles that have to lead the jury's deliberations, presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. He told the jury that they know that there was a physical confrontation that night, that Levi had pulled a knife, that Peter was stabbed once, and that Peter ran off, and then Levi left the park. The basic facts everyone can agree upon, he said. And there is other evidence that is just simply consistent with the evidence. Think about the blood evidence in the car. We know, again, that Mr. Kelly's blood was in the car, as was Mr. Aker Kendall's. And you've heard the testimony of Mr. Stalky, who explained that it was this impact, it was not the impact splatter, it was this cast-off splatter in there. And he was saying it could have been from the knife shaking or being waved around. But when you, again, see how is that consistent with the other evidence, all four of those people testified, or the three that were in, in Mr. Michaels's car, all agreed that they were freaking out in there. They were looking back. They were looking around. It's not an unreasonable conclusion that the knife was in motion in the car. It's consistent with the other testimony. But, he said, he and the state disagree on whether the stab wound is consistent with the movement that Levi described in his testimony. He said the wound went from front to back, left to right, and was at an upward angle. In his opinion, this is consistent with Levi's testimony. He said Prosecutor Stefan had said in his closing that the science in the case doesn't tell them anything, but he said he begs to differ. He noted that a muddy shoe print was found on the frame of the car door, and that jives with where Levi said his foot was as he attempted to hold himself back from being dragged out of the car. He told the jury not to be distracted by the minor inconsistencies. So what do you think the biggest challenge to overcome was? Well, I think that you have a couple of, you know, in this case, you have a couple of things. From an evidentiary standpoint, my client took off, right? These kids fled the scene. And if they, I think people generally will think, well, and this is just a very common human natural reaction is if you didn't do anything, you don't have anything to hide. If you did nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide. And so you have to explain why did these guys take off that night? Why did they not <laughs> call the police? Why did they go home? Why did they go to work the next day? So you've got these facts to they, you know, these people are, it could be argued that they're in this consciousness of guilt, that they're trying to act normal to cover up a crime, right? That they knew more than what they knew. So that was an evidentiary hurdle that we had to contend with. We also had to contend with the fact that, that they were engaged in a verbal altercation with these guys across the river, right? You know, they, they were using derogatory language. They were cursing at each other and they were... You know, so you have to deal with, with those types of facts, too. Closing arguments were given on a Friday, and over the weekend, the two sides worked on a potential plea deal. You know, you're having this constant discussion 
with the prosecutor because a, a person can choose to enter a plea at any point. And that night after we sent the jury home, I had a conversation with the district attorney where he said, look, your client, you know, pleads to that third, that culpable negligence, leave sentencing up to the judge. He's not going to go to prison, but, you know, plead him you know, have this discussion. And I'm ethically obligated to communicate that offer to my client. But Levi turned it down and decided to leave his fate in the hands of the jury. And meanwhile, that jury seemed to be stuck. At one point, they even told the judge that there was one holdout. Ultimately, the jury sent a note to the court at the end of one of the last days of deliberations that said, and they told us, and I've never seen a jury do this, but they told us we are 11 to 1 for not guilty. And so there was one juror that was uh, hung up on that third count. The jury went home, and after a night's sleep, the jury of seven women and five men were ready to announce their verdict. In the matters of State of Wisconsin versus Levi Aker Kendall, 15 CF 169, we, the jury, find the defendant, Levi Aker Kendall, not guilty of second-degree intentional homicide as indicated in the information as count one. We, the jury, find the defendant, Levi Aker Kendall, not guilty of first-degree reckless homicide as indicated in the information as count two. And finally, we, the jury, find the defendant, Levi Aker Kendall, not guilty of second-degree reckless homicide, as indicated in the information as count three. Not guilty on all counts. In this particular case, I really believed this kid. I really believed in him. I mean, he comes from an unbelievably nice family. His parents are, his father's a teacher. You know, his mom worked in the school system. These are the salt-of-the-earth type of people that had a, an unbelievable love for their son and concern for their son and and went to great lengths to provide for their son in in multitudes of ways so i was incredibly joyful and relieved that the ordeal was ordered over for him that you know this entire ordeal was over for him uh and his family but you, you you cannot negate or escape the reality of the other side's emotion, right? Mr. Kelly's family, I think if you're human, you recognize that they're not happy. You know, they feel an injustice has occurred. They feel that this kid just bought his freedom, essentially, by hiring a, you know, a defense attorney. And they're mourning the loss of their brother, father, husband. And that's, you know, it's, it's a really powerful thing to be aware of. And I think as humans, you have to be aware of it because it does, the system does pit two sides against each other. As far as Levi is concerned, I mean, he just, I mean, he was obviously grateful, but just so you, 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 the burden, you know, the, un, the, the unlifting of the burden is so profound for him 
that, I mean, he wept for, you know, he just wept and wept back in, you know, cause he, we had to go through the process of getting him released and securing him and getting him back across the state lines to Minnesota. And so there's, a, there's still a lot of business and then you've got the media attention and you've got all of this stuff that you're dealing with. So there's a lot of busy work to do, but I mean, you, you sit with him and, and his family is overjoyed They're It was right before Christmas. It was to them in their minds, a Christmas miracle. And so, yeah, it's an incredibly profoundly emotional response across the board from all involved, and and it should be. Peter Kelly's brother spoke to reporters after the verdict. He said he thought the jury would have convicted Levi on the lesser second-degree reckless homicide charge. He said, quote, I mean, I just don't know how you can just kill a man who hasn't done anything to you. You can't just stab a man, but maybe you can. The bond violation charges Levi had also been facing were dismissed in May 2016, meaning that Levi has now been cleared of any charges related to the incident that occurred on that fateful day of April 14th, 2015. And that's all for today's episode. I'd love to know what you think. Do you agree with the jury's verdict? Could you have convicted Levi on any of the charges? Or did you believe his testimony? Let me know by tweeting me at Court Junkie Pod, commenting on Instagram at Court Junkie, or by emailing me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. If you're interested in hearing more from my conversation with Levi's attorney, Eric Nelson, I'll be putting the full interview up on Patreon as added content for anyone who donates $10 a month. I think this interview is really great. I had a ton of questions for Eric relating to self-defense cases, the Castle Doctrine in Wisconsin, as well as more specific questions about this case. Eric has a great way of explaining things in layman's terms, so definitely check that out if you can. I recently added a couple more tiers to Patreon with some additional bonus content. Now, if you donate $6 a month, you'll get ad-free Court Junkie regular episodes as well as monthly bonus episodes, like the one I released last week on my regular Court Junkie feed. If you donate $10 a month, you get ad-free episodes, monthly bonus episodes, access to additional case materials, such as today's interview, Court Junkie stickers, and Court Junkie buttons. I also have additional perks coming soon. So check that all out at courtjunkie.com slash support. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.